Right, welcome everybody. This is Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance and today I'm joined by Jonathan Stefanoni from QMV Legal. Welcome, Jonathan. Good afternoon, Simon. Good to be with you. Fantastic. So today we're going to be talking about members' financial best financial interests and new obligations uh, that have come into force uh, very recently. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's um, some new rules would have, which have changed the requirements from focusing on members' interests uh, to their members' the best financial interests. So Jonathan's going to give a bit, bit of a sense of what those obligations are. And we're going to run through a bunch of examples. So this hopefully this conversation will be relevant for super funds, for people with, I guess, a, a legal governance sort of bent, for people with client engagement, because a few examples relate to client engagement, but also the technology and economics pieces that might help to uh, fill in the pieces of the puzzle to get this sort of stuff working for a major super fund. So perhaps a good place to kick off, Jonathan, is do you mind just letting us know what are these new rules? What do they mean? The best interest duty uh, is something which uh, has been enshrined in this, this, this legislation for quite a long time and has recently been the subject to a change uh, as part of the Your Future, Your Super legislation. Now, if we consider the best interests duty, uh, the case law has always interpreted uh, the best interest duty in a superannuational pensioners context as being usually their best financial interests. So it seems the policy intent of government in making this change by inserting the word financial right in the middle of the best interest duty uh, is intended to clarify uh, what this duty already means. But if we do have a look at some of the related changes and the explanatory memorandum, we can see that uh, the your, super, your Future, Your Super legislation uh, is likely to have, in fact, um, changed the law uh, to a certain extent. Cool. So, so you're, the, you're the lawyer, not me. So perhaps you can tell, tell me whether my interpretation is correct. But we're saying that you cannot, as a fund now, prioritise a non-financial interest of a member. I can't spend money that's going to help in some non-financial way, it has to help in a financial way or I can't spend the money. Is that sort of it in a nutshell? Um, I, the way that I understand it is to probably go back to what uh, the old best interest duty meant. And that duty, it had, you know, it had a really well um, known and prominent presence, but what it actually meant in practice was a little bit elusive. Um, the way that it's best understood um, is to consider two key aspects to it. So it's really just a fusion of a duty which trustees out of loyalty, which is essentially to put uh, the interests of their beneficiaries or members first, essentially to avoid conflicts of interest, and secondly, a duty of prudence. So that's essentially about um, managing risks and conducting uh, their, affairs, their affairs in a way which manages those for their beneficiaries. What we can see with the explanatory memorandum for adding financial um, into the best uh, interest duty is that we're introducing a purposive aspect um, to the duty as well, which starts to pry into, I guess, the purposes for which the trustees' powers are being exercised and their duties are being performed um, to be anchored in this concept of financial benefit or financial outcomes. So we've, in many ways, we've almost picked up uh, what the sole purpose test, which is another part of the regulatory regime does, in focusing on uh, retirement incomes or financial benefits as part of the best interest duty. So I guess we've added a new dimension to best interests in calling it best financial interests. 
Okie dokie. So perhaps to flesh out this new dimension, maybe I, I can throw a few examples to you and, and uh, you can let me know whether you think they're impacted in some way or, or another, or maybe not at all. Um, so, so what about, so thinking about the sort of financial versus non-financial interest, what if I'm a fund and I'm thinking about, should I upgrade my website? Should I be thinking about introducing an app that allows members to check their balance? Uh, that sort of thing. These things may not provide a direct financial benefit. The member might feel better about being able to access it. It might make them easier, for example, for a member to do those sorts of things. Do you think those sort of expenditures would be permitted? The explanatory memorandum that accompanied the legislation is quite detailed in providing a bit of a framework as to what the um, expectations are um, after the change. So what we can see is that there's a clear distinction which has been made between essential expenditure and non-essential expenditure. Um, so that distinction um, really focuses on any expenditure which is essential to the prudent operation of the superannuation fund, being subject to, I guess, a lower level of scrutiny and being much less likely to be in breach of uh, the best financial interest duty. Uh, so anything which falls within that category of being essential expenditure um, is, like I guess, at much lower risk um, of being, um, being in breach. So is the expenditure on a website essential, do you think? Yeah, so websites are a really good example and it's uh, something which all superannuation funds will um, be investing in or um, incurring some expenditure in relation to. Um, and it's also interesting in that, you know, a website, it's not a financial benefit in the same way as uh, an account balance is or an insured benefit is to a member. Uh, having said that, you know, it's a it's a service which I think we could all agree. Um, most, if not all, superannuation fund members would expect to have the ability to um, access a website and look up their look up their details and, and deal with their fund in that manner. Uh, so I think there's a really strong um, argument that a superannuation fund would have um, if you consider a member website to suggest that the expenditure incurred in maintaining and developing that website is an essential expenditure based on what the, the reasonable expectations of their memberships are, membership are around the level of services. Yeah, okay. So perhaps a website's essential. Presumably sending out member statements would fall in that same category. Presumably the forms that they need to, the members need to fill out to access various services would fall in that category. What about something like a, a campaign that a fund might run, whether it be an email campaign or even a telephone one, to target perhaps some of their members who they feel might be a, a potential retention risk that they might think might be rolling into a different fund or something like that, starting an SMSF maybe, to proactively call those? Do you think that sort of functionality, would that be classified as essential? Yeah, so it's another really good example, Simon. Um, you mentioned... I guess a couple of different campaigns there, which might be focused on keeping members uh, within the fund or retaining them as members, um, or potentially some of those campaigns can be um, focused on growing growing your membership base as well. So that kind of activity is certainly going to incur some uh, expenditure. Uh, it's important to note that uh, the new best financial interest duty doesn't have a materiality threshold. 
Uh, so it is going to apply even in circumstances where you know the expenditure may be relatively low. Um, but I guess the question is then first whether that expenditure is essential. And I think the most likely interpretation for such a campaign is that it's probably not essential uh, expenditure because that's uh, not going directly to the financial interests which a member might have. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that um, expenditure is going to be inconsistent with the best financial interest duty. It just means that the trust is going to need to go through uh, an additional level of, of scrutiny and assessing uh, whether that's going to stack up um, before before they proceed with that. Okay, so maybe we might come back to those uh, what that process is if it's if it's not essential. But just um, sort of sticking with the big question around sort of what is and what is it isn't essential. What about say a campaign to call selected members about switching back to growth assets? So, so maybe for example they've they, they got they panicked as a result of the. Um, the pandemic-related sort of market decline the first half of 2020, they switched to cash. The fund's sitting there going, look, we can see you're still in cash 12 months later. We can see you're also 28 years old. You've got a long investment sort of time horizon to go to get through to retirement. We really think it's better for you to be in some sort of growth mix. Uh, the fund might proactively then contact them again by email, maybe by calling possibly, but this is a select group of members. Again, do you think that's, a, that's essential? Yeah, like I, I guess there are some considerations uh, around ensuring that any such advice is provided consistent with you know, the obligations around advice. Um, but as to whether the costs involved in making all of those phone calls uh, out to those members is essential, um, I guess it's a good example of where you know, there is a little bit of uncertainty as to whether some of these um, expenses um, should be classified as being within the level of service which members uh, reasonably expect or it's something which goes above and beyond that. Um, so having a reasonable basis for demonstrating that there's an expectation that that's the level of service that members require upfront is important. Um, but then I guess it's also important to have ongoing monitoring in place to ensure that uh, any of those activities which are undertaken uh, do pan out as being, um, you know, as in demand as the original expectation may have indicated. Yeah, okay. So interesting. So it sounds like if I've interpreted what you said correctly, that, that perhaps going out to members and saying to members, what is it that you see as a core function of us as a fund to your members, to you as a member, and then being able to rely on members' expectations as a guide to what therefore is essential? Yeah, that's one way of approaching it. Um, a lot of that information... Uh, may already be collected by a lot of um, trustees as well. Um, so you would typically see most trustees having reasonably good data set, which will demonstrate, you know, the, the services which their members are using, and, you know, the, the frequency which they're using them. Um, so it's not, it's not as if trustees are in the dark as to what, what their members um, expect out of their service offering. But having said that, you know, there are new things which, um, come onto the agenda as well. So doing some kind of testing in the market to, to validate that there's a bit of a demand by way of you know, a survey or something similar could be a really good way of demonstrating that. And yeah, that's that's really important with, with the new best financial interests duties that you've, you've got that evidence um, to rely on if it's ever challenged. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, one of the things that I am often looking for in member surveys is the disconnect between what members say and what they actually think or what they actually do or what they actually need. And so, I mean, in this particular case, if you said to members, do you think it's an essential service that we contact you when you think actually we think actually you're making a poor decision in your in, uh, for your retirement outcome, for example, if I'm a member, I'm like, oh, no, no, bugger off. I'm making my own choices. I know what I'm doing. Well, actually, yeah. no, you don't. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We might think that this is something you need, even though you don't necessarily uh, think that uh, necessary yourself. But but I might. Uh, I'll just give you one more um, one more um, question about the essential versus non-essential before we move on to some of those other aspects about the, the sort of defining financial benefits and adding them up and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Which is, do you think it makes a difference if a cost is incurred internally? Uh, like, for example, it's a a regular salary that we're paying an employee, but that employee now is dedicated to, say, calling members. Um, but we would have paid their salary anyway. It's just that we've now directed their attention, their, their time to this one particular activity versus if I'm paying, say, a contractor or if I'm paying a third-party service provider to essentially do, in this case, what might be the same thing. Does that change the characterization? do you think, of essential versus non-essential? Not necessarily. So the... The duty still applies and expenditure, you know, it can be uh, incurred internally for want of a better term, but, you know, you, you, you levels of human resourcing in your employment, um, you know, there's a lot of internal cost there, which is still expenditure. Uh, separate to that, yeah, you know, superannuation trustees do rely on uh, service providers for a lot of their um, really obviously essential services. Um, but also some of those some of those uh, services which are more likely to potentially fall out of that essential category. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, perhaps we can move on then to the the financial benefits because there's obviously a distinction between what is a financial versus uh, not a financial benefit. So if you don't mind, I'll throw a couple of different scenarios at you here. Let, let me know what you think about whether these things constitute financial benefits uh, or not. Um, the first one is, <clears throat> what, what if I'm a fund who is introducing a new product? So say it's a, I don't know, a life cycle product that's going to um, progressively, what's well, for my younger members, they're going to be invested aggressively and over time, they're going to be progressively moved back into a, uh, a, a more sort of defensive income focused portfolio. And so I've got now... Is it a financial benefit, do you think, for me to give a somebody who's approaching retirement a lower risk portfolio, despite the fact that lower risk portfolio might generate or have an expectation of generating a lower return, but at a lower risk? Is, there, is that a financial benefit in me introducing that sort of product, do you think? Um, I think the, the better question, and um, I think it's what you're trying to get at here, is you know whether the expenditure that would be incurred in the development of a new product and then offering that to members is likely to be consistent with the duty. Um, now, on, on face value, I think it's pretty clear that no, not necessarily. So um, ensuring that the product offering uh, is consistent with the trustees' understanding of the, of the needs of, of their membership um, would, you know, that would be interpreted as being, you know, consistent with um, their, you know, essential expenditures. Now, there are a growing um, set of regulatory obligations around ensuring just that. So with the design and distribution obligations and also the retirement income 
covenant coming in, you know, there are there are clear obligations to do just that. Uh, so upfront uh, to incur the expenditure to you know, investigate uh, and develop such a product, um, I would say has been consistent with that classification as essential expenditure. But what 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 is quite important is that uh, once that product is launched, um, it will be very important for the trustee to then monitor the uptake of that product um, to ensure that you know the, the continued maintenance of that product um, is something which continues to be consistent with those duties. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So we we get around the problem of maybe the returns are lower with the fact that actually this might be deemed to be an essential product for the fund to be offering, and therefore they justify the expenditures involved. Yeah, and I think we've just got to be careful in separating out, you know, the limits of the, the best financial interest duty here, uh, which you know, I would see as really ending at those questions of uh, the expenditure involved in setting up and maintaining that product as distinct from the question which I think you're getting at as to whether the design of that product um, continues to be appropriate for the members that it's designed um, to apply to yeah. and that those defined objectives continue to be satisfied in you know, how that product performs. Okay, well, let, let me give you another one. Let's, let's try, let's switch from life cycle products to insurance. So if there's some expenditure, which is me as a fund running a campaign, again, maybe it's something, an email that's going out, which obviously have a lower cost, more scalable versus yep. having people sitting on calls, uh, on phones, calling, calling members. But again, what if I have, say, identified a cohort of my member base, perhaps they're the sort of in their 30s, uh, the types of people who maybe are marrying, having kids, getting mortgages, that sort of thing. And I look at, at the cohort there and think, actually, there's a chunk of those people who I think maybe don't have enough insurance, given that it's going through that stage in their life cycle, that's actually when they probably might need it most. So we're going to incur some expenditures to ring some of these people and say, actually, have you thought about maybe reconsidering the amount of insurance that you've got? And here are some options. Would the expenditure in that case be justified? Is there a financial benefit in getting someone to pay more insurance premiums and getting a financial benefit from the, the payout, but only really if they die or become permanently disabled? Yeah, well, I think um, the first question as to whether um, insured benefits are an important part of the financial benefit. Like, I think that it's relatively clear that the, the financial interests that a member has in the funds, you know, that certainly includes any insured benefit component that they have around that. So I wouldn't be too concerned that um, the, the insured benefit uh, wasn't, wasn't categorised as such. Um, I guess then you just come to that question of, you know, look, looking at the expenditure and, and, and giving effect to that email campaign. It's probably non-essential. You know, you, you may not argue it's essential, but assume it's non-essential. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess you then just uh, need to be able to uh, demonstrate and, and you should retain some documentation and evidence of um, exactly how you think that that expenditure in that campaign is, is sort of consistent with, with those financial interests. Okay. And related to those couple of last examples, what if I've 
identified a cohort of members. Maybe it's the ones who have switched to cash. Maybe it's the ones who are uninsured. But these are the cohorts, I think. I can add a lot of value as a fund by giving them specific targeted communications. However, those costs involved there are borne by the, our membership base generally. But the benefits accrue to specific cohorts of our members. So does, the, does this change, um, the change of legislation here, impact my ability to make those sort of judgments about sort of cohort um, specific campaigns or, or am I sort of reading too much into it? I, I wouldn't um, immediately look at uh, the best financial interest duty as being the most relevant uh, area of the law um, under those circumstances. But there are existing obligations around equitable treatment of classes of members and equitable treatment of members within classes of membership, uh, which do become relevant in those questions of, I guess, cross-subsidisation of costs which are incurred. Um, I guess the, the, the key principle which is often relied on is ensuring uh, that um, any, uh, any services which are being subsidised by all of your membership are available to all of those members. Um, and not not limiting access to services which all members are paying for. I guess that's why we do see uh, a fee for service type model for certain activities that that members may engage um, with a fund in relation to. I think uh, investment switching is often one that there, there are fees specifically attributable to that. Noting that not all members do that frequently. Family law splits is another example. Um, so you know there is that element of equi equitable um, fee structures, which is often built into the, the, the fee design that funds offer. Yeah, which is interesting if the member can self-select into choosing those services, like, hey, I'm choosing to switch. But if it's the fund who's choosing a cohort to say, actually, we think we can help these members, and I'm deliberately excluding some members. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be calling the 60-year-old members about topping up their insurance because I just don't think it's appropriate for them. So I'm deliberately excluding them. It's not because it's inequitable, I guess, in that sense, is it? It's just not appropriate. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, and it's a challenge, and I guess that's where some of the complexity exists. Um, uh, I guess not only with the best financial interest duty, but you know, these are sometimes tricky questions, and there's not necessarily a clear-cut answer. As, as to how they should be managed. Um, I guess a risk-based approach is, is always sensible is just to understand the, ex the extent of, of the risks around some of those decisions and then, you know, making an appropriate decision based on that level of sure. risk. And one of the things you've alluded to already, which perhaps we can come back to now, is um, mitigating the risk by having the sort of quantitative, the, the business cases, the sort of the evidence base to back up and justify some of the decisions, the expenditures that are being incurred. Um, so maybe can, I can ask you a couple of sort of examples in that space as well. So uh, for example, if I as a fund have decided to run, uh, I don't know, some, some sort of financial literacy campaign, I'm trying to educate and inform my members about aspects of their retirement or saving for retirement or whatever it is. Um, and I'm going out and maybe let's call it non-essential for the time being, just to keep that issue off the table. Um, and I don't know, part of my, my communication maybe is about them paying a bit more off their mortgage. Maybe it's a bit paying a bit more off their credit card and saving the interest. But I, I, maybe there are some things that aren't related to super, but are just generally for their financial well-being. If I'm to 
if I'm to demonstrate a financial benefit, so there's a cost incurred in running this, this campaign, let's assume. So if I'm going to justify the financial benefit involved, do I, do I need to go and measure how many of my members start paying off their mortgage or paying off their credit cards and multiplying the $1,000 they save off their mortgage by an interest rate? And is that what's expected here, do you think? Um, uh, in that example, I guess there's a, a primary uh, concern you have on just ensuring that those services were consistent with the sole purpose test uh, as well, particularly if we're talking about alluding to activities outside of um, their superannuation interests. Um, but I guess if we assume that we get, get over that hurdle and undertake this campaign, um, you know, the, the strength of the evidence which, which you do maintain reduces the risk that you would be found to be breaching this duty. So a trustee will want to have the strongest evidence base possible should that activity ever be challenged. Uh, this is particularly relevant um, because one of the aspects of, of the change in the law was the flipping of the evidential burden uh, here as well. So, um, so should the regulator take a trustee to court and sort of claim that the best financial duty has been breached, uh, the burdens on the trustee to have the evidence and the, you know, I guess the assumption in the court will be that they've breached the duty unless they can um, put up some evidence which demonstrates that that wasn't the case. So in, in that example of a financial literacy campaign, think it through like, uh, you know, to, to explore whether um, that activity had translated into the intended outcomes can be really, really difficult and also really costly as well to, to undertake that kind of follow-up research. So there will be circumstances whereby you could rely on some sort of sampling mechanism or a survey to give you a reasonable indication as to how effective it's been, uh, which uh, would have, you know, that would have um, some good evidential value. Um, and similarly, if there are um, research papers and reports which do, I guess, generalised results which can be attributed to your membership, now, that wouldn't be unreasonable to, 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 to rely on that kind of evidence as well where it's, you know, where it's, where it's applicable. You've got to be careful that you're not taking something out of context um, and misconstruing um, research which, is, which has been done. But, you know, if, if we're looking at some really large superannuation funds which have membership bases which constitute you know, a significant proportion of the Australian population, you know, Australia-wide studies are going to provide, you know, pretty well-aligned sample um, to what um, the fund will be looking at anyway. Yeah. So I can imagine if the legislation and the regulators are pushing this evidentiary burden onto trustees, I can imagine if I was a trustee, I'd be pushing that down through my organisation. So this presumably is a burden that's now going to fall on the data, the technology, perhaps the finance teams to pull together sort of some of the economics, the client engagement teams. There's, I presume, a mix of people who have to be scrambling to put business cases together to justify some of the things that might they might otherwise have been able to justify otherwise but more easily historically yeah like uh like i think you're right in that some of this will fall on you know, the information management and the data teams um but i i also feel you know there's an important focus which needs needs to apply at the decision-making level as well. Um, so it'll be focused on that project's um, business casing area as well in ensuring that the process which is followed uh, in 
making these kind of decisions is subject to a really robust governance framework, which makes it really clear to those um, preparing the information or making the decisions um, what kind of analysis which what kind of analysis should be undertaken to then enable a decision maker to make that decision, understanding the duty, but with the information that they need in front of them to inform that. So having having that governance framework in place, I guess, in the form of your business case templates, uh, your board papers, uh, your expenditure management policy is going to be really critical in governing you know, how, how that process is to occur. That will inevitably rely on um, inputs of, of, it could be data and it could be research, um, but that having that quantitative base captured in that document, which informs the decision-making process, will be really important if a trustee is to have a sound evidence base. Sure, and that's perhaps a, a good segue to ask. So what is it that, that you guys, that you and, and QMB Legal have been doing and, and offering super funds to help them get through, to transition through this process? Yeah, well, it's been a little bit of a scramble, um, particularly if we consider uh, there was, I think it was only about two weeks between the legislation passing and, and the new laws commencing. So, yeah, we've been helping superannuation trustees in, I guess, two key areas. The first one is assisting them in understanding the nature of the change and what it actually means in practice. So um, providing, I guess, our advice as to our understanding of how this new duty will apply in practice has been the first step. And, you know, it's sort of documented in formal advices, but also having some really good discussions with trustees um, to talk it through and assist them in understand, understanding uh, the aspects of the duty which um, are quite clear and those aspects which you know, might remain a little bit unclear and have some uncertainty built into them. Yeah. And the sec second area uh, has been focused on setting up those um, frameworks to ensure that the business activities uh, are more likely to be conducted in a way which is going to see uh, the trustee having that evidence um, in place uh, should any of their decisions on expenditure or investments um, be, be challenged. And, yeah, the, the, the area which we haven't seen come through too much yet but we would expect to see is specific decisions. So um, when trustees encounter a decision that they're a little bit unsure as to uh, whether... Um, it's going to be consistent with the duty or not. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing where we'll be able to advise on that specific, um, whether it might be a project or, or a piece of work, or, you know, whether um, it's likely or less likely to be consistent with the duty. So yeah. there are three areas where we see ourselves helping uh, two, two currently underway and the third one likely to be just around the corner. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that last one, I think, resonates with some of the stuff that I'm doing as well. In, in, part of what I'm doing, I guess, is to help uh, funds better understand and influence their members. So if part of what these regulations require are having a sound evidence base to support expenditures that relate to the future needs and future behaviours of your member, then that's, part, I think, part of where I can um, perhaps play a piece, uh, play a role in sort of bringing that piece of the pie 
uh, to bear as well, perhaps to give a bit more certainty and credibility to the, the evidence base that uh, might ultimately be relied on by the trustee when they have their difficult conversation with the regulator. Yeah, well, let's hope there aren't too many of those uh, <laughs> difficult conversations with the regulator. But uh, look, I, I guess, yeah, it, it, it is important and um, it's likely that the regulators are going to want to test this at some point as well. So as we said, being, being as ready as possible is really important. Fantastic. We might leave it there. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Jonathan, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, best way to get in touch with me is probably via LinkedIn. So uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Jonathan Stefanoni, or you can get me on my email address, uh, jstefanoni at qmvsolutions.com. Fantastic. I think that's a great way of doing it, the LinkedIn option, because if people are out there listening to this as they're walking, walking their dog and taking their permitted exercise, they might not have a pen or a, something handy to write down an email address. So I think probably same with me. If you want to get in touch with me, probably LinkedIn's the way to go. Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia. On that note, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon.